Amen. Amen. Near the end of the book of Genesis, the Israelites are descendants of Abraham in Egypt. The grandson of Abraham named Jacob was renamed Israel. And by the time we get to the end of Genesis, those descendants are not in the land of promise. They're in a land that in the opening of Exodus would be the land of their captivity. We see the people subjected to slavery. And the wondrous deliverance of the Israelites takes place. The book of Exodus is called that because of the exit or the exodus, the departure from that land of bondage. Moses leads them through the Red Sea and into the wilderness and to Mount Sinai. After 11 months at Mount Sinai, the people are led again by Moses toward the promised land. The promised people will go to that promised land led by their deliverer, Moses. Now throughout Israel's past up to that point, we have seen episodes of fear and rebellion. It's hard to be prepared though for Numbers 13 and 14. This is the fourth rebellion, and it is the worst. It is the longest account of any of Israel's rebellions, and it has been called the darkest hour in their life to that point. The level of offense is serious. And you might say, well, their darkest hour, wouldn't that have been their circumstances in Egypt? Well, I think you could make a case that those circumstances and the bondage they experienced under their ruthless taskmasters was indeed a horrific situation of distress and darkness. This is an episode that reveals not the external circumstances to be what they are, but the hearts of the Israelites. Numbers 13 and 14 is a dark hour in their life for that reason. The level of offense is deeply serious. The book of Deuteronomy will later reflect on Israel's wilderness journeys after Egypt. And there will be two sins that stand out in Deuteronomy chapter 9 that typify the unbelief and wickedness of so many of the people. One is the golden calf incident in Exodus 32. And if we're familiar with the golden calf incident in Exodus 32, we could rightly agree that was a horrific display of rebellion. But the second episode in Deuteronomy 9 that the writer reflects on as an incident of rebellion in the people of Israel's history, is what happens in Numbers 13 and 14. We will spend today and next week in Numbers 13 and 14 exploring and being struck by the events of this chapter. It's a pivotal section of the book. They've departed from Sinai and they're heading toward the promised land. And by the end of these chapters, we will see a people who are declaring we cannot take the land after all. The land the Lord has promised. We won't go to that. Let's go back to Egypt. We need a new leader. These chapters explain the wandering that follows chapters 13 and 14. If you just plant yourself somewhere in numbers after chapters 13 and 14... You find yourself in the midst of a wandering and rebellious people and you think, well, where where did all of this come from? And why are they kept from the land decade after decade after decade? You need Numbers 13 and 14 to see the pivotal nature of the narrative or this literary section in the narrative. These explain why the disinheritance and the wandering will follow. We will witness what is called the rebellion of the wilderness generation. When the later parts of the Old Testament refer to the wilderness generation, they're referring to this one. And when the New Testament refers to the wilderness generation, it's referring to this one. 
Numbers 13 and 14 are a kind of passage that has echoes and implications in later texts. It is pivotal for those reasons. It's difficult to overstate. In verses 1 to 16, there are a series of names that are given to us. And uh, we've seen lists of names before. Prior to this, there have been some groups that have been counted, different tribes that have been numbered and named. This is a different group, a group of spies. We're going to see the names of 12 spies who have been appointed to go into the promised land ahead of the whole people of Israel and then come back with a report. The names of the spies are given in verses 1 to 16. I want to observe just a few things along the way here. It begins this way. The Lord, Yahweh, spoke to Moses and he said, send men to spy out the land of Canaan, which I am giving to the people of Israel. There's such a confidence in the Lord's promise there that he is laying out for them. He doesn't just say, send them into the land to spy it out. He says, I am giving you the land. Just an assurance of the covenant promises. He's not brought them out of Egypt and changed his covenant promise at all. Instead, he's giving them the land from each tribe of their fathers. You shall send a man, every one a chief among them. Which means someone occupying a kind of influence or leadership among the people. One from each tribe. Well, there's 12 tribes. And that means there will be 12 spies chosen. Well, Moses sent them in verse 3. We're told he sent them from the wilderness of Paran. This is where they have arrived. It's northeast of Sinai. They've been traveling north in the wilderness of Paran. On a Bible map is getting you closer and closer to the southern boundary of the promised land. And here in the wilderness of Paran, there is a location called Kadesh, sometimes called a longer word, Kadesh Barnea. Kadesh Barnea in the wilderness of Paran is the setting of their rebellion. This wilderness will be a place where they have been assured of the promise of the Lord and they will reject it. Kadesh Barnea is the kind of uh, memory in the minds of the later biblical authors and generations that is marked by unbelief. Though the Lord had spoken promise and assurance to the people. These are their names. We're told in verse 4 that from the tribe of Reuben, Samua, the son of Zakur, From the tribe of Simeon, Shaphat, the son of Hori. From the tribe of Judah, Caleb, the son of Jephunneh. Now that name may sound familiar to you. The others um, aren't given narratives and other uh, characteristics in the stories. But this one named Caleb stands out. Caleb here is connected to Joshua and Caleb. They, as a pair of very faithful, God-fearing, trusting in the promise of God men. And so from the tribe of Judah, Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, will be one of those spies. We'll see uh, him. We will see Joshua as well featured prominently in just a bit. Notice in verse 7, from the tribe of Issachar, Egal, the son of Joseph. From the tribe of Ephraim, Hoshea, the son of Nun. That phrase, Hoshea, the son of Nun, there in verse 8, that last son of Nun phrase, you might think, well, I would have expected Joshua, the son of Nun. Well, this is the same individual. We'll see that clarified for us in just a moment. Both Caleb and Joshua will be sent as two of the 12 spies into the land. In verse 9, from the tribe of Benjamin, Palti, the son of Raphu. From the tribe of Zebulun, Gadiel, the son of Sodi. From the tribe of Joseph, that is from the tribe of Manasseh, Gadi, the son of Susi. From the tribe of Dan, Amiel, the son of Gamali. 
From the tribe of Asher, Sethur, the son of Michael. From the tribe of Naphtali, Nabi, the son of Vafsi. From the tribe of Gad, Guel, the son of Maki. Now listen, that's a lot of names. Those are difficult to pronounce. I don't even know if I have them all right, but uh, they, sound, they, they sound okay to me. If you, if you would think I would pronounce that a little bit differently, well, we'll all find out in the New Jerusalem how these names go. But until then, you know, we'll, we'll, we're going to trust uh, our best efforts to see some of these names that don't appear again. Caleb and Joshua will be among the, uh, the good spies. These other names have not been mentioned before. We've seen lists of tribal heads or tribal chiefs that have been mentioned multiple times. Numbers 1, Numbers 7. These have names that are familiar if you look carefully at those lists. This is a new group. And the likeliness of this is because of the spectrum of ages. Old Testament scholars will suggest that these were probably chosen because they are among the younger leaders that are going to go into the land and go through a very arduous and many hundreds of miles of a journey that some of the older leaders will not have to undergo, which have been named earlier. That seems very likely to me, but we've seen that list of names 12 Verse 16 said, these were the names of the men whom Moses sent to spy out the land. And Moses called Hoshea, the son of Nun, Joshua. Uh, So just to reiterate there in verse 16, here is the name familiar, familiar to us, Joshua, from earlier passages. He's the one who defeated the Amalekites in Exodus 17, while Moses was on the mountain raising the staff into the air. He was the assistant to Moses in Exodus 32 and 33 that was named. He is going to be the uh, supporter of Moses in Numbers 11 that we saw, who was uh, was concerned for Moses' leadership and authority. He will be the successor of Moses. And if you think, wait, is this the Joshua that leads the people across the Jordan? This is that Joshua. The book of Joshua is named for him. And therefore, he is one of those 12, uh, one of those 12 spies, a very significant figure. It doesn't strike us in numbers how significant Joshua will be. And yet, as the book of, the, uh, the book of Deuteronomy and the book of Joshua unfold, we see how crucial he will be. He will be the new Moses for the people. We especially are interested then on how the one from Judah's tribe, Caleb, and this one from Ephraim, Joshua, will receive uh, these, uh, this land. How are they going to think about it? How are they going to report about it? In verses 17 to 24, the mission is clear. He doesn't say, well, I'm just going to send you in. You know, just come back and tell me, you know, whatever, whatever you happen to spot. You know, each of you. Focus on different stuff. He gives them very specific instructions, actually. He says in verse 17, spy out the land of Canaan. This land is what Abraham heard about in Genesis 12 and 15 and 17. Those chapters in Genesis that were promise oriented. God brought Abraham from the Tigris and Euphrates river areas in Mesopotamia and brought him to the land of promise. That was called then the land of Canaan. It was renamed the land of Israel. And therefore, this land of Canaan is occupied and some reconnaissance is going to be necessary. These Israelites are going into an occupied land where there will be hostile inhabitants, military fortresses, mighty warriors. And Moses sends 12 spies in to return with intel so that they can have a sense of what they're getting into on the ground. He sends these 12 spies with these instructions. Go up into the Negev. 
The Negev is the name of a very dry region, a desert region. It's what you would pass through heading into the southern boundary. What he's referring to then is what's immediately north of their location in the wilderness of Paran. They're going to go up through this desert region called the Negev. And you go up into the hill country. And then in verse 18, see what the land is. Whether the people who dwell in it are strong or weak. Whether they are few or many. Whether the land they dwell in is good or bad. And whether the cities they dwell in are camps or strongholds. He says pairs are very interesting. They continue in verse 20. Whether the land is rich or poor. Whether there are trees in it or not. I think this can boil down to the fact of tell us what the people are like. And tell us what the produce is like. Tell us what the people are like. Tell us what the produce is like. Tell us about what's growing in the land. Tell us about the trees and the fruit. Tell us whether the land itself is good. But then we want to also know about the people. Are they weak? Are they few? Are they just living in camps, moving from here to there? Or are they mighty and they have military fortresses and there are many of them? I just want to know the statistics. He says in verse 19, be of good courage. Bring some of the fruit of the land. That instruction is because of the end of verse 20. It was the season of the first ripe grapes. And that means that the goodness of the land is tangible and edible already. They can bring back some grapes to demonstrate that. Now, these instructions then are going to be clear. In verse 21, so they went up. They went up and they spied out the land from the wilderness of Zin to Rehob near Labohamat. This is a summary statement. Verse 21 is going to be followed by some investigation in this town called Hebron. Um, but in verse 21, this is a summary that they started in the southern boundary and they went all the way to the north. If you go to the wilderness of Zin on your Bible map, that's in the southern boundary right below the boundary of Canaan. And then Rehob near Labohamat, that's in the northern part of the land, even above some of the boundaries that were initially occupied in the book of Joshua, th these, these sites don't mean the same thing to us as if they were words like Louisville and Frankfurt and Lexington. But we look at these words and turning to Bible maps, we can notice, here's what he's saying. Start in the south of the land and go all the way through north. Don't stop. Don't just explore like a, a few hundred yards and then come back. You're not going in right across the boundary and then rushing back with a report. I want you to go all the way through. And you might understand how risky this could seem from an earthly perspective. If these are inhabitants with mighty fortresses and hostile armies, to send in a group that are indeed spying out the land has a level of risk physically from their perspective, of course. The Lord has assured them. I am giving you the land. In other words, they could walk with a kind of confidence and hope that no matter what they face, that no matter how mighty the opposition might seem, that no matter how insidious the fortresses and armies might be, the Lord's giving us the land. And would the Lord lie? Is the Lord unable to give what he's promised? They could go into the land, starting in the south, going all the way through it to the north. And in verse 22... They went up into the Negev, which is that desert, and they came to Hebron. Hebron is a location that's about 18 miles southwest of Jerusalem. Hebron is an interesting place in the book of Genesis because it's where Abraham is buried. 
It's where Isaac is buried. It's where Jacob is buried. And they each have wives that are buried there as well. Hebron was a very important spot in the book of Genesis. We don't hear anything about the patriarchs and their burial sites in any of the report of these spots. Instead, we of hearing what would be good, we hear things that would stand out as uh, intimidating and imposing. They go up to into the Negev and they come to a place called Hebron and they notice some descendants there that immediately are off-putting. They are called Ahiman, Sheshai, and Talmai. They are descendants of Anak. And they were also given a little reference there about uh, Hebron here as a town. Hebron was built seven years before Zoan in Egypt. The reason this probably matters is in the days of the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, Hebron was not an impressive place. But while the Israelites were in Egypt and familiar with places like Zoan, Hebron was built up. Hebron was a more vibrant location when they would have arrived. So whatever they had heard from about, from, uh, about this place from any ancestors, this was not like the days of the patriarchs. This would be like looking at pictures of Louisville from the 1940s to, the tw- to 2022 and noticing that the growth and expansion is not like it once was. It is now in a kind of situation where you can look at the pictures and notice a before and after in a major way. I think the end of verse 22 is just trying to say there's a before and an after here. Hebron was built up. And it was built up seven years before Zoan in Egypt, which they would have been familiar with. And they have warriors in this land. These three names, Ahiman, Sheshai, and Talmai, are descendants of mighty warriors. The reason Anak and these three descendants are named is because these are ancient, gigantic warriors. They are known in the the, uh, reputation of these warriors to be people of tremendous height, such that their stature and size would strike fear into all of these people. It is likely that someone like Goliath in the book of 1 Samuel is a descendant of the people of Anak. And so when you have Anak and these three names that are mentioned here, there are gigantic warriors that they notice. Immediately you can imagine their hearts melting. This is not going to be some normal kind of battle. You You can just imagine the fear that would start to grip these people who see these great physically imposing figures and they have heard of them previously. These names are given here. The reason these names are recorded is because these would be famous figures that would be noted and remembered by readers of the ancient Near East. Now in verse 23, they do come to a valley of Eshkol. Moses had said, I want you to bring back some grapes. Let's watch their uh, obedience here. Verse 23, they came to the valley of Eshkol. The word Eshkol means cluster. They came to the valley of cluster and they cut down from there a branch. With a single cluster of grapes. And they carried it on a pole between two of them. Now I bet you've never gone to a store. Picked up a bag of grapes and said can somebody come over and help me carry this. That would be absolutely crazy right. You just can't imagine the, uh, the idea of a cluster of grapes. So large that you actually would need more than one person practically to bear it. Why is that detail important here in verse 23? 
So that when we're told that the land was good and flourishing and the produce was outstanding, we have an installment of that here. We have an example of that here. This cluster of grapes is so massive that two people have to carry it on a pole. Carrying it on a pole between the two of them makes you think of Israelites who are bearing the Ark of the Covenant on poles, carrying it as they march. Here these people are returning from the promised land with this pole and cluster of grapes on it, requiring more than one person to transport. They didn't only bring that. They brought some pomegranates. They brought some figs. All of these examples of fruit and produce are to say to the people, here, this is not a barren land. God has brought us to a good and prospering place and he is giving it to us. So in verse 24, that place was called the Valley of Eshkol because of the cluster that the people of Israel cut down from there. Like I said, the word um, Eshkol means cluster. Now, in verses 25 to 33, we've seen names of the spies, verses 1 to 16, We've seen the instructions for what their spying involves, what they're to look for, what they're to come and report back on. And we've seen them go through the land, starting in the south and going through the north. And we notice that as they're going to return, they've got a cluster of grapes on a pole and a bunch of other fruit too. All right, so among the 12 of these spies, they're bringing back some serious goods. And in verses 25 to 33, their report. And if you can imagine the intrigue among the Israelites, among the tribes, among Moses and Aaron, you're waiting for these people to return. They're going to come back with information that's not like, you know, information you may or may not care about. This is like information about the promised land, and you're going to be looking for it like you've heard that there's going to be a major breaking news, 4 p.m. news report, and you're wanting to tune in because it's of that great significance. These people are on Uh, They're on the tips of their toes and with bated breath waiting for a report. And at the end of 40 days, oh, think about that for a moment. 40 days, that's an important span of time. That's weeks. We're talking about more than a month. We're talking about hundreds of miles from the southern part of the land above the northern boundary. We're looking at a people who have traveled approximately 260 miles one way and 260 miles another way back to Kadesh Barnea in the wilderness of Paran. That's a lot of traveling. And it doesn't say these 12 went on 12 animals. We're not told any means of additional transport, though that would have been helpful to them and perhaps was true. Either way, the amount of hours and days and weeks traveling were many. And they went through the land. And they went 40 days total there and back. And with this, they come to Moses and Aaron and to all the congregation of the people of Israel. It's like, gather everybody together. Here they come. You know, we see them. Is that them in the distance? They've been checking every day. You know, is is that them? No, it's not them. Is that them? And finally... It's them. There's a group of 12. And they can count them. That's 12 heads. That looks like Joshua. I think that's Caleb. And here they come. And now in verse 26, they come to Moses, to Aaron, to the congregation. And they brought back word to them and to the congregation and showed them the fruit of the land. So whatever else the people were doing in the land, you're stopping. Doesn't matter what you were involved in recreationally, agriculturally. The spies are back. The spies are back and they've got a report And in verse 27, they said, We came... 
to the land to which you sent us. All right, so so far, so good. So far, so good. They, they didn't get lost somewhere in the Negev desert. Okay, they, they went through. They came to the land. It flows with milk and honey. Oh, that's also good. And the reason that's good is because God said to Moses, I'm going to lead you out, and you're going to lead the people into a land flowing with milk and honey. That's Exodus 3 and in verse 8. And that expression, milk and honey, is to represent the delights of a land bearing fruit and produce that would nourish the people and be a blessing to them. It's not to say that there's only milk and honey. It's to say it's flowing with milk and honey as it's a desirable place. You want to go here. If you know what is here, you will know that God has been faithful to His promise. He did not mislead us. He did not say, I'm going to take you to a land flowing with milk and honey. And then it wasn't that. It is that. The Lord said it was that, and they find out it is indeed that. It flows with milk and honey. And this is its fruit. And then they summon those two guys forward. I don't know who carried the branch, uh, the cluster of grapes. They're not named. But these two guys, you know, they're wrestling this cluster of grapes. And you just imagine everybody with their mouths open just like, I, that's, the, that's the biggest bunch of grapes I've ever seen in my life on that pole. And here these two people have carried it. And they've carried it hundreds of miles Okay, and so they're ready to put that pole down. I guarantee you they're ready to let that rest on the ground. And this cluster of grapes has traveled far. And here in verse 27, good news flowing with milk and honey. Here is its grapefruit. Verse 28. However. Oh, there had to be a however. Now, I do want to mention that not every however has to be followed by this. It's not like what they're about to say in verse 28 isn't true. It is true, but it's what they're going to do with that information. Verse 28 says, however, the people we saw that dwell in the land are strong. And the cities are fortified and very large. You see, earlier Moses had said, tell me whether the people are strong or weak. Oh, they're they're strong. Well, tell us whether they dwell in camps or do they dwell in fortified places. Eh, fortified places. And so they're, they're kind of identifying, you know, which of the, of the words in the parable are true. The cities are fortified very large. Besides, we saw the descendants of Anak there. And everybody went, oh, the descendants of Anak are there. Those mighty warriors, the great height and the physical imposition and intimidation. Those people are there. You know, so this is bad news. That's not what you, you are hoping that they would say. There isn't anybody there who looks strong enough to do just about anything. I don't think they could have carried this cluster of grapes. And so you, you would want some kind of, from an earthly perspective, assurance that there is no, there is no snare or threat that looks imposing at all. And then in verse 28, the opposite is true, isn't it? The people are strong. The cities are large and fortified, which means there are military fortresses and walls around cities. You know, think, think Jericho. Think the, land, the city of Jericho with walls around a city where military fortresses are fortified and large. And the descendants of Anak are there. So these aren't even puny warriors. You know, these are massive people who know how to fight. Verse 29, the Amalekites dwell in the land of the Negev. Now see, Joshua would be especially interested in having seen this firsthand. He had dealt with Amalekite armies back in Exodus. 
Now he had defeated them, but they're still reporting some facts here of other Amalekites. They dwell in the land of the Negev. So you know, these Israelite spies, they're going up to the Negev first. They're not even in the land. They're passing through that desert region. Already there are armies. The Amalekites, here they are. And then they go into the land. There's Hittites, Jebusites, Amorites that dwell in the hill country, Canaanites that dwell by the sea. And along the Jordan, that's a reference to the Mediterranean Sea on the west. It's a reference to the Jordan River on the east. Canaanites, armies, neighboring peoples, fortresses, large warriors. It's as if they're saying, yeah, we brought back the uh, pomegranates and the the fruit. And uh, we've got this report that it's flowing with milk and honey. You know what else it's flowing with? Armies. You know what else is large? The warriors. And and so they're telling the truth about this promised land. Peoples indeed dwelled there. They are in, indeed occupying the promised land. Verse 30. I love Caleb's response here. In verse 30, Caleb, one of these 12 spies, he, he, he sort of stops. You just imagine waving his hands like, all right, everybody, just stop for a second. He's quieting them down. And he says, let us go up at once and occupy it. For we are well able to overcome it. Now, from an earthly perspective, the strategy might look quite grim when the Amalekites and the Hittites and the Jebusites and the Amorites and other Canaanites are on the western side of the sea and on the eastern part of the Jordan River and in the Negev when you're going into the land and in the land itself. That would seem like the kind of thing that from a worldly perspective you'd say, well, there's just how how in the world are we going to take this land? What is Caleb speaking from? I submit to you, Caleb is not talking according to the flesh. These are words from a man who walks and talks by faith. Verse 30 doesn't make sense, but by faith. Let us go up at once and occupy it, for we are well able to overcome it. Oh, the descendants of Anak, these mighty warriors. Caleb says, yeah, we can do that. Now, of course, the reason Caleb believes that is not because he and the other 11 spies and all the people of the land are themselves so mighty. The Lord has promised to give them the land, and these people ought to remember what happened to Egypt. There is nothing too hard with the Lord. There's nothing too hard for him. He has no promise that he lacks the power to accomplish. And so Caleb looks at this land and no doubt thinks, well, we walked through walls of water. We watched ten plagues come down upon Egypt. We see some descendants of Anak. I bet the Lord can handle them too. What is the Lord's jurisdiction? Run up against the Negev and then stop there? No. These Amalekites and these Jebusites and these Amorites and all the Canaanites by any of the waters, they all are under the sovereign authority of the Lord God. And here Caleb says, let's go at once. He doesn't even say, you know what, let's wait a few weeks and uh, we're going to get together. No, he says, let's just pack up. Let's go at once and occupy it. There is a kind of zeal here that we can admire. There is a devotion to the promises of God that's inspiring and motivating. And they say in verse 31, we are not able to go up against the people. Now, who says that? says in verse 31, the men who had gone up with him. Wait a second. So the spies have been in agreement on what's been shared to this point. So fruitful land, 
Filled with some intimidating inhabitants. We want to grant that too. But then the report diverges. Here we see a fork in the road. And the majority report is that we should not go up. The men who had gone up with Caleb said, We are not able to go up against the people, for they are stronger than we are. Now, on the face of it, it's not a question of whether that part is true. Are these imposing, intimidating fortresses and warriors mighty than the spies and these Israelites? And I would submit to you, physically speaking, yes. The question isn't whether the Amalekites are stronger than the Israelites, but whether they are stronger than Yahweh. And they are not stronger than Yahweh. These spies are speaking like the will of the descendants of Anak reigns supreme. And it does not. Yahweh has said, I am giving you the land and he is ruler over the nations. So when they say we are not able to go up against this people, have they forgotten who has brought them out of Egypt, who has gone with them and who will lead them into the land? Caleb hasn't forgotten it. He knows the gigantic warriors are many and the fortresses are strong. But where those things are strong, God is stronger. These people's eyes are not fixed on what is greater. They say, oh, these warriors are so great. Right, but they're not greater. The, these fortresses and, and the descendants of Anak, and they seem so imposing. Right, but they don't reign supreme. The fixation of one's eyes is so key here, isn't it? What is Caleb doing? Well, Caleb is motivated by the promise and covenant and power of God. And he says, we're going to go up and occupy it because we have God with us. It's the presence of God that inspires and motivates Caleb. It's the covenant promises of God. He remembers and they forget. That is not what is occupying their minds. They are afraid. We can understand and grant them a very human emotion and reaction of feeling fear. But courage is what happens in spite of fear. And here, Caleb has said, let's go up. And they say, we are not able to go up. It is a direct contradiction of Caleb's message. It's as if he has quieted down the people and now the spies who were with Caleb are trying to quiet him down and saying, whoa, wait a second here, Caleb. We are not able to go up. Have you lost your mind? They're stronger than we are. Yes, they're stronger than you, but they're not stronger than Yahweh. And in verse 32, so they, these spies, this is a, a statement about the majority, the report. They brought to the people of Israel a bad report. Now that's not in quotation marks as if a character says that who may or may not be right in their thinking. This is the evaluation of the biblical author. This is an evaluation of what we've just heard and what has just come from the lips of these people. We are not able to overcome them. That's a bad report. This is not a critique of whether there were indeed clusters of grapes and plenty of fruit and land flowing with milk and honey. That's not the bad report. It's the last lines of the spies that are critiqued here, and rightly so. They say, the land through which we have gone to spy it out is a land that devours its inhabitants, and all the people that we saw in it are of great height. Well, 
God said, I'm going to give you the land. And they say, we're not able to overcome it. I mean, then one of those voices is wrong. They are either able to overcome it because of the power and promise of God, and they therefore need to respond in faith, or they are right, and Yahweh has overpromised. And they look in the land and they say, you know, after all, we're not going to be able to do this. It doesn't matter what's in our history. This is not our future. And they brought a bad report. It tells us here in verse 32 that they said the land devours its inhabitants. It's picturing the land like a mouth with teeth that just consumes. You know, if you try to wander in there, they're trying to save the Israelites. You go into that land, it's going to swallow us up. And now, of course, that's a, a personifying of the land with a mouth. And I think it represents all the inhabiting Canaanites and armies. It's as if those vicious warriors and those mighty cities are going to be the absolute undoing and destruction of every Israelite household. He says, you go in there, we're all going to die. That land devours its inhabitants. You don't come back from that. We're going to go in there and we're done for. We are not able to go up in verse 31. And verse 32, that's a land that devours its inhabitants. The people are of a great height. And in verse 33, there we saw the Nephilim, the sons of Anak who come from the Nephilim. These are more specific warriors. Warriors that are mighty and imposing. They weren't even mentioned earlier on when several names of the descendants of Anak were mentioned, but they're mentioned here. They weren't mentioned along with the Amalekites and Hittites and Jebusites, but it's as if the people say, hey, yeah, and get this. We didn't even mention this part yet. Nephilim are there. Can you believe it? We seem, to the, our, we seem to ourselves like grasshoppers, and so we seemed to them. They are making statements and conclusions, not by comparing the inhabitants to the power of Yahweh, but looking at people's height. Oh, they just seem so mighty and tall. And, you know, compared to that, what do we look like? We look like grasshoppers. Grasshoppers to be crushed, stomped on by the descendants of Anak. They're comparing the wrong thing. Their eyes are fixed on the wrong realities. There are greater forces and power and covenant promises at work. Their eyes are not fixed on those things. All they can see is what frightens them. And when their focus is so narrow on the troubles and fearful things that are their circumstances, the faithfulness and greatness of Yahweh does not inspire them. The faithfulness and covenant of God does not motivate them. They feel debilitated because they are so afraid. We find out later in the book of Joshua, because Joshua will go into this land. And Joshua 11, it says, Joshua came up at that time and cut off the descendants of Anak from the hill country. From Hebron, from Debir, from Anab, from all the hill country of Judah, from all the hill country of Israel. He devoted them to destruction with their cities. There is none of the Anakim, which are the descendants of Anak, left in the land of the people of Israel. Only in Gaza and in Goth and in Ashdod did some remain. Oh, see, these people here say, oh, the descendants of Anak, they seem so mighty. Well, you fast forward in the biblical storyline. You know what Joshua does? Joshua leads forces against them and overcomes them. 
The people in Numbers 13 are wrong who said we are not able to overcome them. What was Joshua such a mighty and and tall and physically imposing warrior? He is led by the Lord God Almighty who has said I'm giving you the land. Nothing is too hard for the Lord. And so they have these promises, right? So the tension they feel is that God has promised them the land. And they come into the land and they say, I just don't see how this is going to happen. So for them, God making true on his promise seems too difficult. It seems to them impossible. They do not see a way. These were the people backed up to the Red Sea. These are the people who were up against the waters and said, I don't see how we're delivered from here. And God says, the water answers to me. I'm going to make the water stand up and the, water and the ground dry. And you're going to walk across on that. These are the people who themselves have seen situations and circumstances where the faithfulness of God has proven true. And once again, they are in a situation overwhelming and beyond their ability to handle. God is giving them more than they can handle. And they need to trust the Lord. They need to lean upon His power. They need to remember His covenant promises. And if their eyes are fixated on the fearfulness of their circumstances, they will not trust Him. But if they will remember the goodness of the Lord and the wisdom of the Lord and the promises of the Lord, then the greatness of the Lord will look larger than the sons of Anak. We saw the Nephilim. Well, they're not greater than Yahweh. The Amalekites are not greater than Him. The Jebusites and the Hittites do not reign supreme. If we fast forward later in the book of Joshua to Joshua 15, it says Caleb drove out the three sons of Anak, Sheshai, Ahimon, and Talmai, the descendants of Anak. You know why those names sound familiar? Because we read them in Numbers 13. Those spies went into the land and said, those guys are there. And later on, when the conquest of Canaan takes place, Caleb destroys them all. Those very descendants of Anak. Why? Because Caleb is so mighty? Because the Lord God is almighty. Not some mighty or most mighty, but almighty. Joshua and Caleb are the only spies. The only spies among the twelve that believe the promises of Yahweh here and are ready to go into the land. When Caleb speaks earlier, we shouldn't say that Joshua doesn't echo that. But instead, the later actions of these two men show that they, they alone together amidst this other Ten spies, they believed in the promises of Yahweh, while the Israelites have unbelief. If they could remember that Yahweh is greater than their enemies and that the blessings of the land are greater than their troubles, they would go forward. They would go onward. The goodness of the land is greater than the wickedness in the land. The covenant promises of Yahweh are stronger than all the Canaanites combined. All the combined armies of all the land of Canaan could not undo and undermine the promises of Yahweh stronger than them all. They say the Canaanite giant seems so high. Yeah, but God's love is higher. His steadfast love is deeper, reaching to the clouds and the highest mountains into the depths of the sea. His commitment to fulfill His will through His people outshines and outlasts all the strategies and fortresses of Canaan. We can see here the danger of fixing our eyes on what seems overwhelming and temporal from an earthly perspective and failing to see what indeed is always and everlastingly greater. The one who is greater, his power that is greater, his promises that are true. The wilderness generation in Numbers 13 do not have their eyes fixed on God. 
And they brought back proof that His promises are true. Look at the cluster of graves. It's a land flowing with milk and honey. And if He said this is what the land involves, and that's true, and He says, I'm giving you the land, why won't they believe it? Don't fix your eyes in this life on what's just imposing and discouraging and overwhelming. Because there is much that imposes and discourages. And you can't control your circumstances. But you can think to yourself, what is it that I need to remember that is true? Because where I fix my eyes will affect my response. These rebellious Israelites and these ten spies who saw the goodness of the land rejected it. They rejected the provision of the Lord. The Lord is, I'm giving you this land. And they say, we are not up to, uh, able to overcome and receive it. Don't fix your eyes on what is just overwhelming and discouraging. We must fix our eyes upon God. Well, how often must we do this? Well, listen. With a little bit of introspection, a little bit of self-reflection, I think we can realize our eyes are prone to wander off of the greatness and wisdom of God to all sorts of things that overwhelm and discourage. And that this is indeed the daily battle of the Christian life. To look to Him. Let us be those who remember and rejoice in the goodness and the promises and the wisdom and the power of God. He has not given us merely a cluster of grapes carried on a pole. He has given to us His Son. In Christ, we have eternal life, justification through faith alone, and we are not condemned. Now, we are heading to an inheritance of a new Jerusalem and a land that is fairer than day. And by faith, we see it afar. But we have tasted and seen even now. The reason we know this is because we have been united by the Spirit of God to the Lord Jesus Christ. Even now, we are new creations. Even now, we are justified by grace and through faith alone. Even now, we have eternal life that has begun. We have tasted the fruit of the coming city. We shall therefore be the good spies. Because we have seen enough to know God will make good on all His promises. We have beheld the glories of the Gospel and we will report that His promises are true and His power is greater. His character is faithful and unwaveringly so. And the coming weight of glory outlasts and surpasses all the momentary sufferings of this age. We don't think just about Amalekites and Jebusites. We think about all the discouragements around us. All the hardships and economic difficulties. All the diseases and disasters around us. We look at these things and they are not where we first and foremost fix our eyes. And they must not be. Rather, we know that the power of God and the covenant promises of God and the union we share already in Christ are the taste of the coming age and the Lord is true. His promises are true. So... Onward we go. We do not say, like those ten, how shall we? We're not able to go up into the land. We will say Christ has already gone before us. In resurrection life, He has defeated death. 
In Him we are not condemned. He has already installed in the everlasting life begun in His people the promises that are coming true. So therefore we need not fear. We can be those that Moses would say to the people, be of good courage. Be strong. Not because we're, not, we're so mighty. And not because we have it together. If you think about our frailties and our weaknesses compared to the challenges of this age, our hope is God. Our only hope is Him. His supremacy, His majesty, His saving, atoning work in Christ. We want to be those then who have the good report, who spread the good news, who ascend the mountains and shout down into the valleys that the Lord our God has come and the victory is His and in Him it is ours. In Philippians 2, Paul says, Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish, in the midst of a crooked, twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life. The Christian life is the life of holding fast to the word of life in the midst of a darkened generation that we might shine knowing that our God reigns supreme and all His promises are true. So, onward we go. Let's pray.